weren't you gonna play some of that song so I can like get into my metal voice? Oh my god, that is intense. <laughs> Ready to rock? <laughs> At Best Concordia. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Best Concordia. I'm Johnny B, and with me, as always, here in the Ethnography Lab are my fabulous producers, Anne-Marie Tilcotte and Chris Millet. Hey, guys. Hello. And we are super jazzed about this week's episode, which we are calling The Total Package, because this week we are talking about creating a work that is a total work, a sort of Gesamtkunstwerk, which is a Wagnerian term, which means a total work of art. Huh? Yeah? Haven't heard that one before? Well, let me tell you. A total work of art, which I love because my background is in theater and performance, which I know you could never have guessed. And I am always trying to find ways to blur the lines between academics and artistic practice. And happily for me, both of my guests this week, Adam Van Sertema and Claude Leduc, spoke to this in their respective interviews. I sat down with Claude first, a sociology master's student here at Concordia, to start off talking to him about his true passion, metal. You are a musician. Yep. And how many projects have you got on the go right now? How many bands? Uh, have you got? Right now, two. Okay. It's completely different, but they're all within uh, the spectrum of metal. <laughs> okay, so these two projects, whether they're, they're, they're untitled, they're titled? No, they're titled, of course. <laughs> uh, one, uh, we came out with our first full-length album last year. Amazing. Uh, the band's called Kithilist. Um, Say again? Kithilist. Kithilist. Kithilist, Kithilist. Uh, I've heard so many different pronunciations. We're what probably the only band with an apostrophe in it. And uh, the, okay, spell <laughs> in for the me. Name. Uh, C-H-T-H-E apostrophe uh-huh. I-L-I-S-T Okay, what is the story behind that crazy name? <laughs> well, it started when uh, <laughs> like, it, it stems from the very idea that, you know, like, might as well make up a word. If we're gonna okay. make up something, if we're gonna get creative uh, like, I think there was this idea at some point of uh, creating an entire language yeah. around like the lore like or the story surrounding the uh-huh. album and the band in general but then that kind of that kind of stuck around but like in a lesser form and um it's loosely based on uh like the word uh stonic which is like a kind of phantom or like an apparition okay um and we just fucked and around with the word until stonic like, yeah and that band um is mostly the brainchild of a really good friend of mine uh, Phil Tuga He's hey, a long guy, and uh, he's out. been around the scene. Yeah, he's been around the scene for a while. Um, the metal scene. Yeah, he's cool. got a lot of other bands and stuff. Like amazing guitar player. Nice. Um, yeah, and in that band, like I write some stuff, and I'm a full time member, like contributing, yeah. you know, creative and everything. But uh, yeah, it's his brainchild. What do you play? Uh, I play guitar, lead okay. guitars, and sometimes back vocals. Um, I say sometimes because it depends on uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my headspace live. The track. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, the other project's called Sutra, and it, even though it's still within the realm of metal, it's, eh, like, I wouldn't say diametrically opposed, but very, very different. Um, it's on the it, other end of the metal yeah, spectrum. Yeah, it's, it, it's metal-based music, but it's, like, very, it's an eclectic mix of influences. Okay. Um, like, that one revolves more around my own themes of, you know, of, like... Uh, Sort of like uh, Eastern mysticism, philosophy, existentialism, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And yeah, we came out with a demo a year and a half ago now, a couple of songs. And uh, for a band that's never played a gig, um, it caused a pretty decent splash. Like, I'm pretty happy with the reception. Nice. We've even, we even have label interest, so that's Amazing. Really cool. And is that one your brainchild? Yeah, yeah, that one's like... Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, that one's say, my baby. Say the name again for me. Sutra. Sutra. Okay. With an H. Okay. Right, gotcha. Yeah. You said that the first group is... A diametrically opposed to the second group in terms yeah. of style. So <laughs> because like uh, help well, a noob out. <laughs> Sutra takes a lot of influences from like uh, a lot of non-metal stuff. Okay. Not that Katilas doesn't, but it's just completely different. Like my approach with Sutra, especially if I'm writing or anything, is to listen to anything but metal. Okay. Um, I'm really into like uh, I like a lot of like uh, fusion, a lot of jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, I like shoegaze. I like a lot of electro music as well. Yeah. Um, like just. Cla- contemporary classical music. Mm. Like, I'm a huge Olivier Messiaen fan, um, so I tend to listen to a lot of like, French composers like that, like him. Cool. Um, like I, and that's the type of stuff I want to bring in, because, like, I like the metal aesthetic, but, like, I don't want yeah. to do something else, right? Right. And Catillist is something very different um, in the sense that, like, it's not typical, like, typically metal either, but um, mm-hmm. the influences are usually much more, like, grounded in metal. Like, in we me- take a lot from um, the early 90s uh, Finnish and Swedish scenes. Okay. Because the thing with metal is that, like, not only did it grow different, like, styles, but it also had different scenes, like, on the international scale. Right. And what's really, really interesting about that is that um, they're very distinct to the point that, you know, um, a lot of people who just listen to metal even passively for a bit, they can start to tell the differences. Mm. You, can, you can listen to a band and tell where they're from. So what is it that sort of like distinguishes the Finnish and Swedish? Uh, the Finnish death metal scene was very... Uh, it's death metal yeah, now we're talking, metal. not yeah, just yeah, like yeah. straight death up metal, metal specifically. Like death metal. So like, okay, cool. you know, you have... Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe I should go into that before even say... Yeah, so you have like the typical heavy metal, which is what people know, right? Like right. Iron Maiden. Um, yeah. A lot of people argue over who was the first metal band. Uh, uh-huh. Some would say, many would, you know, probably accurately say it was Black Sabbath. I tend to yeah. think it was Deep Purple. Okay. Um, oh, but, oh, you know, it's it going to be a throwdown <laughs> here with Chris and Claude. <laughs> see, so it depends. Some would even say it's Blue Cheer, you know, yeah. like. Wait, wait, so, get over here, Chris. Get over here. If you're, you're going to say it's Deep Purple, then you might as well just say it's Chuck Berry. Like, if you're, just, if you're not going to draw a line somewhere. Ah, uh, but the thing is, is that. If you metal at the beginning of the first rock riff, then, like, where. where yeah, but where Richie Black. Sabbath was the first that really, I think, defined the genre. Aesthetically and yeah, but your Ch- but your Chuck Berry reference though applies uh, probably even more to Sabbath than it does to Deep Purple because Deep Purple was like Richie Blackmore, especially his lead playing and the way he wrote riffs and stuff. Like I thought it was grounded more in like the neoclassical approach than it was in the blues approach. Whereas Black Sabbath, Tony Yomi's like a blues player who decided to downtune his guitar and like play slower. So I'm not gonna win this. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I'm glad you're sitting so close to me, Chris, because yeah, I want you to chime in. But anyway, so you but have, anyway. like, the heavy metal, which is more, like, you know, standard, like, straight beat, like, yeah. riffs, you know, like, right. very guitar-accentuated. You got, like, loud solos, and you have, like, usually a very, like, uh, powerful singer at the forefront, right? Yes. Like, usually, like, with this strong falsetto and, like, singing yeah. high notes and stuff like that. So that's, <laughs> I think... Like, that's the one we're familiar with. And even right. from that, there were derivatives, right? Like, you know, there was glam and hair metal, so yeah. like Motley Crue, for example. Sure, um, yeah. And then uh, and there was thrash metal that grew out of that as well, which had brought in some of, like, the more, like, punk attitude to it. Yeah. Except, you know, increase the tempo by four billion times. And, like, you know, <laughs> like Metallica qualifies as thrash. 
Oh, like, really? In, okay. Yeah. Okay. But to anyone who's a thrash lover, it's like, oh, don't talk to me about Metallica. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and then stuff, thrash you know, snobs. stuff grew out of that. You know, things just got more intense. Like, you had black metal, you had death metal, you have sludge, you have doom, you have... Sludge and yeah. doom? What? <laughs> you have stoner doom, you have, like, oh so God. many things. I mean... I love it. Yeah, it's a, it's a big thing in high school, and then everyone kind of outgrows these categories, and it's like, you use them as general, like, indicators of, like, oh, you might dig this because they sound like that right. or they sound like this but yeah. then we get and then there's even technical death metal which puts an aspect on like the musicianship specifically mm-hmm. so yeah <laughs> like, right. so it goes everywhere yeah. but to answer your original question John yes. um, what was specific about the Finnish and Swedish scenes was uh, first of all the sound like the type of distortion that was used like the way the guitars were mixed in I find mm-hmm. um, especially with the Swedish sound you had a very strong like crunch on the guitar almost almost a bit of a fuzz going. Um, okay. And, uh, like, the the vocals are almost in the back compared to the rest of the guitars. Uh, okay. And the Finnish bands were usually really just out there and very dark. Yeah. Um, like, like, ridiculously large intervals on guitar that you're just not used to hearing anywhere else. Um, not as big an, an, of an aspect on, like, playing super fast or things like that. It was just very alien sounding mm, um cool. and katilas takes uh, a page out of that book right like uh like a lot of the riffs we do like they they're groovy and they bounce around but like they're they're off kilter uh mm-hmm. like time changes galore everywhere like our drummer <laughs> who's freaking amazing by the yeah. way <laughs> like, what's your uh, drummer his name is Philippe Boucher, uh-huh. awesome guy, like a even better person than he is a drummer, and that's saying something. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, like he he tends to add stuff and improvise a bit all over the place live sometimes. Cool. So it's like you know the set's like eighty percent there, but like it's never exactly the same thing. So right. that's part of the vibe of the band too, and uh, we've been drawing decent crowds at our shows lately, so it's fun. And the album that you're cutting now, this is the band that has not uh, played a single gig, but yeah. you've recorded two albums now? <laughs> no, well, well, we've recorded, our de- we came out with our demo a year and a half ago, like I said, and now we're in the process of putting the finishing touches on our full length. Okay. Um, we don't have a drummer yet. That's uh, why we haven't played a, a gig. Issue. Yeah, <laughs> is that we that's actually, a classic issue? We actually a uh, got a session guy to do the drums uh, okay. from France. Um, the stuff is extremely challenging with like really really high tempos. Okay. I'm I'm like yeah. So this song is at 240. And <laughs> I want you to play. I want you to play like 16th notes. You know, it's like yeah, it's demanding. Holy um, shit! That's not just crazy. in terms of, but in, the speed is one thing. But you don't want just speed too. You want like variety. You want yeah. You, you want, want the you want people. You want it to be interesting. Like yes. the speed is a factor. It's an aesthetic choice. It's not like this. Like I got to show that I'm faster than everyone right. type of thing. You know, and that shows. That yeah. attitude shows, yeah, I find, um, because that was prevalent or continues to be mm-hmm. in uh, in music and especially metal because you get this performance culture going, you know, especially right. now with YouTube, like where, you know, guitarists can like, just like, okay, look what I can do. I can do a cover of this and like, you mm-hmm. know, and then like, so you start your band and then your band becomes an avenue to show off rather than express yourself. Uh, um, so, so yeah, so it's a fine it's line to walk. Yeah, it's a fine line to walk. Um, right. between when you get to a certain like uh, like level of performance mm-hmm. you know like playing at those tempos and playing with that intensity is one thing and being expressive with it is another mm-hmm. so yeah so you can get uh, 
we're actually lucky here in Quebec because we have one of the most we have one of the richest uh, extreme music scenes on the planet. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't. Know I mean, that. it's up and down in waves, but like Quebec metal in general. Yeah. Um, we're internationally recognized for that. Wow, that's some super of the, cool. Some like. Some of the founding bands and the bands that had like you know like the most profound effects on extreme metal uh, come from here. Come from here, yeah. And you say it goes up and down, hey. So it's like it's like anything. When, Sometimes the scene's in a better like, state than others. I know. <laughs> than in a, at other times. Is there like a, a sort of like a classic time period for metal in Quebec? Oh, um, that depends who you ask. Uh, yeah, but since I'm sure. here and I'm the one mic'd yeah, up, for you, I can say what, is, what, what is, I want. Exactly. What's Claude's classic? Um, metal for me, period in like Quebec? it spans a decent time. But uh, there were there was uh, this strong period uh, in the mid '90s, early yeah. to mid '90s, and there was also a really big period in the early 2000s. Oh yeah. Um, I oh. remember when I was like 15, 16, and like I could go see a show practically every you know second week and it would yeah. be a decent band playing wow cool but i mean the the it's not all on um on just like the culture like mm-hmm. as well it has to do also with like different um, different ways of uh promoting yourself and different music like tends to bring about changes in the culture right yeah, and like sure. like what you see nowadays is that you you have a lot of opportunities to go to shows but you're a lot of people are booking bands that don't necessarily belong together yeah um, and that's my observation. Um, but um, yeah, so you get you'll get like crazy shows with like five or six bands, and then you'll have people who are just there for the opening band. People mm. who are just there for like the fourth band, and then you right. know, like you, sometimes you'll be in an awkward position where the headliner had less people than the band playing oh, really? before. But it's easy to it's easy also to get nostalgic about. Uh, oh course. yeah, when I was a little younger, things were going so well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think we you know people tend, like tend to identify with the. The time that they, their formative years, right? When, like you talked earlier about like the importance of those different identifications when you're in high school. And I just think that, you know. Oh, like for sure. Of for course, sure. it makes sense, right? You're like really yeah. starting to strongly figure out that identity during that time, time period. Well, and then when you're recording an album, when you're putting something together, are you thinking in terms of the, like, how does that, t- tell me a little bit about your process putting an album together, because I'm curious about, like, are you, you're thinking not just in terms of singles, but you're thinking about sort of, like, the piece as a whole, the album as a whole, I would imagine. Um, yeah, John, that's honestly the only way I think about it. Yeah. Um, like, I, I've had uh, sort of, like, anxiety figuring out what order do I want these songs to be in you know it's yeah, like yeah. yeah I think of the to me the album is extremely important yeah um the way like the art I mean we invest a lot of money in artwork we get a com, you know we get a commission to mm-hmm. someone to do like a painting for it like you really want the way you pay for the layout afterwards you know with like a graphic uh, yeah. artist like you want this to come together as a complete uh package yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I call I hate calling it a package, but that's what it is. Like, right? You know, and to me, it's just like the third song fits there because you know it's it's contextualized with the second and the fourth. You know, yes. like you want those things like matter to me. Yeah. yeah. Talking about this sort of like album concept, can you talk a little bit about the new new album <coughs> that's coming out? Like. Yeah. What's, sure. What's well, the concept? it's our first full length, right? So, like the mm-hmm. album loosely follows the theme of someone struggling with um, <laughs> spiritual detachment. Yeah. 
Like know me. it's being, a, yeah, kind of, yeah. Like it's someone like you know, it's it loosely follows you know this uh, general uh, theme of existential dread, yeah, of like self doubt and just, and then you know, having a hard time with one's own skepticism. You know, mm-hmm. when does it end? When does when does it stop? Um, mm-hmm. And you know, we play on different variations of that you know, existential crisis or different interpretations of it, where yeah. we're talking about, you know, the Nietzsche's abyss or, yeah. you know, like... <laughs> My favorite. Yeah, or, um, you know, the sort of, like, uh, the samsara in in a lot of, like, uh, Hindu and uh, Buddhist scriptures, so... Yeah. Yeah, and the, the funny thing is, is that, you know, I'm fa- I have a very uh, North Americanized uh, take... Well, on uh, like from. easy, yeah, <laughs> Eastern thinking and Eastern thought in general, and right. like I mean, like I educate myself to not to counteract that, just to see, yeah. like you know, to pr- to, to to take my knowledge of these things further. But sure. like it's this general uh, thinking, this general mm-hmm. idea about you know science, spirituality, and things like that is kind of what guides the lyrical themes and mm-hmm. even the aesthetic themes of the album as well. Um, in terms of like where we go, the song titles, like what we want as far as artwork and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like uh, the general, th- I think uh, that's what it's all about. I just and there's some sci-fi stuff. Basically, all the stuff I love and that I'm interested in, I just pack it into this yeah. thing and make something out of it. It and it comes out looking like this chimera of different influences. But yeah. Like, yeah. But there's cohesion there, and it's like that's the idea. Yeah. <laughs> the idea is to bring it is Hopefully. to show how these all these things tie together, and that doesn't matter. Yeah. You're good. Yeah. And is it just you sort of mostly having input into this um, album? Or? Well, no, my uh, my bassist and best friend uh, Alex Bale, uh, who's an Alex. amazing ba- <laughs> amazing bassist, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, like we're we have very similar interests uh, okay. on those lines. Uh, whether they're intellectual or like musical, so like, yeah, we kind of bring those together. And uh, I write most of the songs, but like, yeah. like he's a big contributing. Like he has a lot of say in terms of the arrangements and in terms of like putting things together and where we should go and what we should do and things like that. Um, cool. Yeah, on top of writing like his own bass lines and writing some of the drum parts as right. well. Right. Um, and you guys have been writing together for a long time, or? Yeah. Well, I mean, like writing together. We've been jamming together since like you know grade eight. Oh no way! <laughs> grade, yeah, That's grade awesome. Eight. But when we both started, when we both picked up guitar, like he plays guitar yeah. as well. Um, and uh, I remember jamming Metallica, Metallica tunes in my bedroom, you know. Like, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like I mean, that's where it starts for most of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, but no, he's like we we write together. Um, oh. And some of the songs on this this album's been a long time coming. So for me, it's like a bit of a like dare. Like I, when I, when people ask me about it, I usually say it's like I've, I'm vomiting this album. Like I'm mm-hmm. getting it over with, so I can move on. Mm-hmm. I'm like this album ha- hasn't even come out yet, and I'm already like writing stuff for the sophomore effort, you know? Like, right, right, but, right. But uh, because I mean, some of the songs, like there are songs that I wrote last year on this album, and there are songs that were written five years ago. Like, okay. So like, there's gonna be a, an interesting mix. There's a mix um, in yeah. terms of that time frame. So it didn't all just vomit out at yeah, once. Yeah. So it's so been there's like a, a gradual vomiting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's just now it's all coming out, right? Like, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's also kind of painful. <laughs> also painful. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> the 
you're also a master's student here yeah. at Concordia University. We're going to switch gears a little bit because we yeah. talked about... Well, I think now the good, stuff I'm uncomfortable about. I think it's a good time. No, I think it's a good time because we talked a little bit about the theme of this album and I brought up Enomi because I know that that's one of the sort of ideas that you're playing with and that's Durkheim, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm like a, a, yeah. such a like sham sociologist. I'm like, who, who said that again? Like, it's we such are bullshit. All. We but, are all. <laughs> imposter syndrome. Yeah, no, but like, I did not study sociology in my undergrad, so I'm always like, who said that thing again? But I think it's a good time maybe to talk about, because I'm curious about that overlap between maybe your academics and your music. And like, I, it's, I, from what you've said, I see a link between the two. There's some thematic links there. So well, I'm just, just on the basis of what I'm interested in, um, I think the main link has to do with these issues I, I addressed before in terms of like, you know, anxiety, existential dread, um, mm-hmm. transcendence, you know, mm-hmm. the notion of, di- of a divinity in general. Um, you know, like, I don't want to dumb it down to this, like, you know, to one sentence as the search for God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I mean, like, it's kind of, I guess you could take it there. Like, it's not... Sure. I mean, it starts there. But I also yeah. have... My interests in sci-fi are also, like, lead mm-hmm. me to try to problematize, you know, the, the things I talk about in school or the things that I'm interested in in school. Yeah. This idea of AI and, you know, like, what we're doing with ourselves as social beings uh, mm-hmm. with computers, technology, <laughs> cell phones, all this thing. Like, I right. just had a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday and... Um, I figured I would bring this up if this question came up today because, uh-huh. like, I felt it encapsulated really well what I wanted to talk about. Yeah, he's uh, he was talking about how um, we just we're working on this technology right now, and I say we like humanity collectively, um, called um, text to voice, text to speech. I forget which one, okay. um, but it's you know it's the opposite of. Uh, you know, saying something into your right. phone and then, or having it written out or like, you know, like dictation. Um, it's the opposite. It's you write something as a text yeah. and uh, someone and then the computer hears someone's voice for a minute. And then from that sample, they can basically get an idea of that entire f- like the way that person talks. So input using your voice. Yeah. But but not Texting. actually hearing you say yeah. it, but you, it's your... Oh, wow. And he was very, very enthusiastic about that. And my initial reaction was, I am scared shitless about this. Uh-huh. And he was asking me why. And I told him, I'm like, well, look, like, we're taking... We, we've already taken the step where uh, we've taken conversations that we have in the context as embodied human beings. Yeah. Uh, you know, inside a room, uh, one human being to another. We have different, like, inflections. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, like, uh, in our voices, we have different body languages, mannerisms. Like, yeah. language is not just one-dimensional. It's not information. It's a, it's a world that's being thrown at you, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Um, and we've already narrowed that down into a text format, which we... Uh, un- on a certain, I guess, uh, unconscious level, we already try to compensate for with emojis um, right. and new and different acronyms, which we use sort of very loosely. Mm-hmm. I mean, like when I use LOL, I'm not actually LOLing half the time. Right. It means like it means like I'm not serious, <laughs> you know, like or you know, hi, you know, it's a joke, you yes. know, like or yeah, yeah, I'm being sarcastic. It's you know, to contextualize it conveys different things, yeah, but like absolutely. we're we're narrowing these down. And I'm yeah. not not and not trying to take this to the level of you know like this new speak 1984 argument, mm-hmm. but um, the way I see it is that we're getting rid of the context in favor of practicality, mm. and that stems from you know this uh, this uh, push towards techn- uh, this technological push of 
making everything immediate. Mm-hmm. But what, when we're doing that, we're collapsing space, we're collapsing time, we're collapsing the world in general and turning mm-hmm. it into nothing but pure information. Mm-hmm. And now what we want to do is we want to bring that back but start from the, the disembodied source of information rather than actually, like, just recognize, no, this is, like, we, we usurped our entire world into a means to communicate. Yeah. Now we're going to take that means to communicate to reconstruct our, our reality? Like, that doesn't work for me. Um, right. And to me, like... What's the practical use of that technology, though, of, like, the text-to-voice? <laughs> like, where would that be used? Like, that, would that be, like... Well, he was, ta- he was coming from a gaming context. So, oh, okay. like, you can construct an avatar that's much more convincing, right? Ah, uh, yes. Um, and the, the idea of online avatars is directly tied to what I'm talking about, but, like, yep. it warrants a discussion onto itself, practically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I forget the context in which we were talking about it. Um, right now it escapes me, but like mm. uh, the idea is that like, I mean, just like anything, convenience, right? You don't right. have to read your text anymore, and you don't have to listen to Siri tell you what you know what the text says. Mm. You can actually hear the hear voice your of whoever. Say it. Yeah, exactly. But then it's like, why don't you but just not, like leave a voicemail? <laughs> but you're hearing a digitized version of the text. You're hearing yeah, a, a computerized bizarre. interpretation. The the inflections, the body language, uh, like the subtle tones of tone of voice, right? And, Essentially, the agency over your words yeah. is slowly stripped from you, and to or me, is that it just an extension. Yeah, but extent, but extension. That's the thing, though. Extension ends up taking you over. Hmm. Um, when it, the classical approach to the cybernetic system, to have this idea that you have a closed-in system of in, like of information mm-hmm. communication, um, the idea of a closed-in system in general, like treats every outside piece as as noise right. or as like you know chaos something that is beyond the system mm-hmm. um, barring the ability to actually control like you know human error and therefore noise what you're going to do is you're going to put the human right in the middle of the system between the input of information and between the output mm-hmm. essentially and yeah you're saying well yeah the human being can still do what they want in the middle yeah but they have right. no say over what goes in and what goes out ah. All they do is that they have this mechanical... So it ties into critical theory as well. And, like, you know, it's easy to get apocalyptic, and that's not what I'm trying to do uh, when I'm talking about these things. Um, But that's what I'm interested in when it comes to, like, our use of technology. Like, there is no single piece of technology that is merely an object. Right. Um, Everything we've produced has been produced and is packed full of meaning that we've... And the way we see ourselves, the way, the way we see the world, what we mm-hmm. want from the world, mm-hmm. that's packed into a piece of technology. But that mm-hmm. thing feeds back into us what the world should be like. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, uh, you know, in this age of, you know, big data and talking about, like, you know, social media and trying to... I feel like we're still kind of using the same tools as... Uh, ethnographists, sociologists, anthropologists, philosophers even. Like, mm-hmm. we're still using very similar tools uh, to talk about the way technology affects us. And I'm like, no, we need to revamp those things too. Mm. Do like I know what, how we can do that? Of to- what sorts of tools? Like, just like... Well, for example, like, uh, conceiving... A, like, when I say tools, I mean concepts or mm. theories. Right. Uh, the, way we, the way we understand, for example... Uh, an ob- the object of a social relationship. I'm bringing Durkheim mm-hmm. back here, right? Yeah, With like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> an object, He's your man. an object of sociology <laughs> as an object itself, and the way right. that you can think of it. And like, I mean, it's not that that is out of date. Like, I mean, right. we can certainly go back to Durkheim and realize how much we misinterpreted a lot of the things he said. Yeah. Um, but I, that's what I mean. I mean, like, we can't think of, we can't consider 
social interaction the same way we do now as we did, let's say, even 30, 40 years ago. Sure. Because yeah. it's not the same social interaction anymore. No. It is mediated by completely different objects. And those objects are packed full uh, of they, meaning. Those objects are historical. Right. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm talking all no, over the place. No, here, no, no, no. This is great. I love hearing and this I, stuff. Yeah, so <laughs> so that's, that's the stuff I'm into. And I guess, like, yeah, I guess the more mechanical side of my thinking comes out, like, um, at school. Is there yeah, a particular, um, uh, uh, like, is, is there a particular object that you would want to look at in terms of... Well, that's the challenge, actually. The meaning. Um, because... Do you think even, about maybe, like, your music? Or, like, maybe there's, like, a... Well, that's been the biggest problem for me, mm-hmm. figuring an, ob- an avenue in which I can explore these, uh, this idea specifically. Mm-hmm. This idea of technology becoming an automating process. Mm. Technology feeding back into you what it wants inevitably boils down to a phenomenology of mm-hmm. what is happening. And I'm a sociology grad student, <laughs> not a philosophy <laughs> one. So, yeah, so there's ways to work around that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have, I've spent the greater part of the last while working almost exclusively on music. Yeah. No, my profs did not hear this. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> But uh, now I'm just getting back into it, and that's yeah. You really like touched on the the the, the soft point, I guess, John. Like that's really what I'm working on, getting an object in. Yeah. Um, and this, and more and more, I think it's going to revolve around these technologies, right? This uh, text-to-voice phenomena or things like that. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to find something in there, and that's what I'm going to because the ideas are all there. Mm-hmm. And I am totally. I am doing more of a theoretical paper at the start. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So it's going to be like a, a treatment of these objects mm-hmm. more than anything. Um, yeah. I don't know. My gut tells me that there's a link between all of these things that we've talked about today, that there's something in your music that is, that can, there's a, there's like a gap to bridge there. I don't For know. sure. Probably. I would probably, I mean, maybe your, you know, your instincts uh, ring true and I have to think about it some more. Yeah. But it's, it's yeah. It's just, I, I've always had my heart broken, or like when I, so to speak, when uh, I started thinking more academically about art stuff. Mm. Um, it, I always reached a point where I was just like, no, like I'm missing the point mm, of yeah, the so, art itself. Yeah, so generally mm. speaking, my, my uh, intuition or my impulse is to stay, is to keep those two things separate, yeah. which I think. Yeah, inevitably does violence to either or. Right. Um, if you you know you're you're resistant to that and you want to keep them separate, mm-hmm. but it's almost more of a, it's yeah it's a security barrier almost like I need to keep those things apart or else something's not gonna go right somewhere. Right. The art uh, will but lose I mean like maybe that, the... that's like anything else, right? Maybe I'll just get over it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm super curious to have you come back and talk about all of this stuff again. Will you come back? And yeah, I will. Okay. Especially when I've got some more research laid out. And be like, yeah. This is what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were right, John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for that moment of vindication. It's going to be so good. Well, Claude, thank you so much for coming. This has been so great. I've learned a lot listening to this because I don't know shit about metal, but now I do. And like, Awesome. Yeah, this has been a really fun talk.
So that was Effervesce by Sutra, which is Claude's brainchild. And this is the first cut off their new LP, which will be coming out soon. Links to their stuff will be on our Best Concordia page, as well as our Best Concordia YouTube playlist. So make sure you check that out and keep an eye out for that upcoming LP. Now we're bringing it back into the ethnography lab with Adam Van Sertema, whose band Adam the Snipes, you might remember, was featured on our very first episode. Now, I had a chance to sit down and talk to Adam about the ethnolab and the famous wooden table that the Creative Reuse Research Group built, which coincidentally contains some heavy metal. <laughs> yeah, I, I had to go back for some more puns. You know me. <laughs> the groans, the groans. Uh, so Adam talked to me about how the table came together Ah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, in <laughs> the intrinsic shared humanity imbued in the creation of material objects. How's that for a highfalutin sentence? Yeah. And the creative process that is the interpretation of research. I want to talk to you a little bit about this creative reuse group. Now, we talked a bit before, and you said that it was... It's under, it's ironically or coincidentally uh, under construction kind of at the yeah, moment. Yes, yes, that's the creative reuse group. There are, there are some, um, there are some folks here uh, who are very interested in uh, reuse, recycling and um, environmental issues as mm -hmm. an anthropological problem to be discussed and considered and also to be activated. Right. Um, and... I'm certainly for that, but I, it's not part of my um, intellectual purview per se. But when we got together, uh, we were talking about, well, we don't have a lot of budget for the lab. I said, well, why don't we just buy some stuff? And I know where there's a pile of wood. We can make things. Yeah. And people looked like, oh, my God, you can make things. <laughs> we can make a thing. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> that's what I'm doing on and off because – you know, summers and uh, oh, yeah. my Have you worked there. as like a, a so builder, I, a carpenter? Well, I, yeah, I, work as a, I work as a carpenter a lot of the time when I 
basically don't have a teaching contract. Okay. Um, so uh, there was a pile of old wood from a, build, a building that's um, going to be destroyed and uh, com an industrial complex yeah. near my house. And so I said, well, we could make a table, and yeah. which is right here. here in front of us. And so we got together <laughs> and, and made it over uh, January. And... Um, and, uh, and here it is now in all its glory. It was very interesting because it really brought people together to go and work on this and to, because uh, there's some people with some experience, some people with no experience, yeah. and they all got a chance to go and work and, and grow, and that was a really fabulous experience for everybody. I really love being part of that. Cool. And so do, where did you pick up the skill of being a carpenter? Um, I was very hungry. Yeah. And I needed work. <laughs> and this, oddly enough, seems to be the story of my life because I got into teaching because right. of that. Okay. Um, so I know over the years I just worked um, originally building fences for a friend of mine. We were both in uh, undergrads. And uh, we did this for a few years because it was a good way to make money. We yeah. lived out in the uh, western, par uh, western part of Quebec. Okay. And that was how we, we just made money, is building fences and doing repairs. And, you know, he, we went off and finished our degrees and yeah. went off into other things. And then he uh, he actually started a media marketing company. Okay. It was quite successful and sold it to uh, buy a horse farm. Oh, yeah. And then he started a uh, business. So, in fact, I've been working for him building fences again. Okay. But we make considerably more money than <laughs> we did when we You've come full kids. circle. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yes. But so you're not, you didn't go to carpentry school or anything like that? No. You're just, like, no. self-taught... Yeah, I actually went to a trade high school, but I studied electronics and electricity. Oh, okay. And no carpenters in your family besides you? Um, my brother kind of does it, okay. but he's, I find him a little um, eccentric Okay. Uh, there in, about his what he does. Uh, but no, no. It, there okay. are a lot of, you know, my dad was a diesel mechanic before he became an engineer. Right. Okay. So, the, and when you guys were making the table and collaborating on that, was that sort of like... I don't know, were you thinking about it in terms of, like, this is a research project and this is a pr research process? Like, were, was there sort of conversations around that? Not really. Um, I think there was just an idea that this is a fun and interesting thing to do. Mm -hmm. And um, one element of my, again, of my, my dissertation research is discussing how... Um, Disciplines that traditionally aren't thought of as being expressive media, exp as being expressive engineering, even to some extent the humanities. Yeah. You sort of like, you analyze art, right. but you don't actually do art. Right. Written large. And um, part of my idea is that when you get people to build things, they discover questions they didn't realize they had. Mm -hmm. And this is a very, um, this sounds, this can sound very airy-fairy, although there's actually, a, within logic, there is actually a, an argument for why this can happen. Right. And, uh, which is part of what I'm pursuing. And uh, uh, C.S. Peirce um, touches on uh, abductive logic. It goes back to Aristotle. So the idea is, no, let's just build something because it's fun and interesting. And then we will suddenly realize, oh, there are all these questions that we can raise about the object. Right. Um, so were there any questions that came up for for you or um, for anybody else? Yes, could I get it to work? <laughs> because right. I've never done I've never done this. I've never run a wood a workshop for um a group of people who have never who have not done carpentry and yeah. it's so I felt I was quite I was I found I proposed this and then found myself terrified to realize oh I had to follow through. <laughs> um but I th for myself um I think that there's 
a lot to be thought about, about the, the concept of boundary objects, uh -huh. which are objects which have meaning to people of different backgrounds or perspectives, okay. but it gives a touch point where they can overlap and share, even though it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to one group as to another. Okay. So, so in the context of the table, explain. For the, for the, in this case, it, for me, it was a teaching experience, a chance okay. to get people to do things that they hadn't done before. Um, right. You know, I've, I've, I've lived around tools all my life. Yeah. And when somebody said, what's this? Oh, it's a drill. What do you do with it? That was, that, it was astounding to me because, but I realized, no, if somebody's never encountered this, how would they know? Yeah. And so now we have people who do things like that. We have people who are, who are terrified to use the large um, planing and shaping machines that form the wood that, the old wood that I, I Yeah, bought. that would be me. I would be terrified. And they, and they got up and they did it. And so, and cool. so now all of a sudden I said, hey, this is not an impossibility. It's something I can do. It's available. And I think that changes uh, personally. Right. Um, intellectually, I think it's interesting. There's a some one of, some stuff relevant to me is the notion the notion of joint attention uh -huh. because I'm interested oh, in the issues yes. of theory of mind. Right, right. And joint attention is very critical when you're building things, especially when you're say taking a, an eight foot heavy board right. and planing it across this sharp spinning object, yes. which is carving off the wood. Yeah. So you have to be very focused on it and very aware of what the other person's focus is. Right. This is a very obvious thing to us, but it, explaining how it happens and how we are aware that it happens yeah. is actually uh, still a mystery. It's still right. not, ex it's, it's, it's black boxed by most psychology. Yes, and so because it's it's felt right. It's it's like embodied. It's not necessarily yes. a thing that you can articulate. It's you know like we're moving a table, but when we have we somehow know how what little movements mean, and we can interpret those things. I think that's and really it's remarkable cool. that that uh, humans do it and other living creatures do it. Uh, getting machines to do it is extremely difficult, and mm. it's pretty clear that our concepts of how a machine does this, a robot. Yeah is not the same way a human being does it huh. or presumably other animals. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's, there's, there's a, a missing lot of component there's there. Of, yes, and, and, and explaining that, however, is very critical to explaining who we are right. and our place in it. I think it has very big ramifications on our place in the universe Yes. Um, at a very fundamental level because modern physics, despite its tremendous successes for explaining uh, so, much, so many phenomena, yeah. it can't explain this. Right. It simply says... It, it it ranges from we can't explain it to it isn't there. You're yeah. imagining you're, you're imagining your own awareness, uh. which I, I I'm, <laughs> I'm willing to say no. I'm, yeah. I'm going to go with the, I'm actually I am and you are aware. Yes, uh, but again, there's a joint and there's a joint attention issue. Yep. with um, the fact that we're talking, we're having this conversation. Right, it is sort of weirdly mediated because we've got microphones in our faces. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um. And we're sort of aware that we're there's a bit of a performance here, right? Yeah. So uh, my own dissertation work is actually trying to talk about that awareness without um, directly doing it through linguistics, but through physical play. Right. And you are specifically looking at the game of tug of war. Yes. Which I think is so neat. So two people or more on a rope, pulling both sides of the rope, and yes. and so tell me a little bit more about that. Um, again, when, when tag first came up, uh, there was some real discussions about what they were doing. There's a lot of discussion, what it meant to play. Mm -hmm. And, um, perhaps naively, I went to the dollar store, bought a whole bunch of junk, basically toys and things. And I brought them and I pulled out this rope and, uh, 
people looked at me like, oh my God, what's he going to do with the rope? And I just said, well, let's play tug of war because we were talking about how the things like the Wii, which are a cordless sim- simulacrum yep. of, of wait, wait, a play. Wait, wait, wait. who now? It simulates the thing. <laughs> it simulates doing something. When you're okay. when you wave the Wii controller, you're like yeah. you're trying to chop with a sword, or you're firing a gun, or uh, something, okay. Okay. or playing a tennis racket. It's simulating. It's not. It's not actually. You're not actually doing it. Right. 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 And I thought, well, could we do tug of war? Would that be more or less useful? Would it be interesting? And so this kind of stuck with me. And um, uh, when it came time to do my dissertation, I thought, well, this is a really fun thing to play with. And I built a tug-of-war controller purely because I could. Okay. I built that with a couple of friends of mine, Life Penzendorfer, who's a communications uh, MA, graduated, mm-hmm. and Dr. Amanda Williams, who came here as a postdoc. Um, and uh, we built this this thing, and uh, as part of the Bizarro Game Controllers um, workshops back in 2011, 2012. Okay. And we st- and we used it as a controller, and it was just weird because it was really heavy. We used a fish scale, so you physically had to really pull on it to make it work, uh, as opposed to things which are very light. Yeah. And um, also, you don't have to talk about it. You you can do right. it with a, as a bodily experience. But uh, right. And then, and then, what happens to that bodily experience when it's over? In terms of you as a researcher, this you know is I mean? this is where it gets complex because um, I'm looking at uh, qualitative methods of mm-hmm. talking about it and accounts. Uh, there are within within philosophy and sort of within phenomenology. Uh, and I'm going to backtrack. Okay. When we're talking about phenomenology, it's not simply observing what's going on around right. you. It is trying to infer from the fact that you are having experience. Yeah. It is making a statement about the fundamental nature of being. Okay. So you're, you're, you know, and people say, well, you have to measure it. We don't, if you don't know what you're measuring, if you can't right. conceptualize what you're measuring, you're not measuring anything. You can't anything. measure it. Yeah, you're, just making, you're just making up numbers. Right. Um, so you have to start <laughs> there. And for us as human beings, that is, seems to be our primary way that we, we learn things is yeah. through this experience. Yes. So... There has been approaches taken in philosophy to try and rigorously describe our own experiences in a way that reveals something. It's a very slow process to do this because, partially because so much of it is invisible. Our senses work very well. Mm -hmm. Um, Believe it or not, we generally don't, you know, when you think about the billions of people that walk the earth today, they don't generally walk into walls all the time. We don't right. not identify things. Well, um, I mean, sometimes. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Tell me about it. But the point is, most of the time, our senses really seem to work very well. So they're almost invisible. And that's part of the problem. We don't, we're not aware of it. So we make assumptions because it doesn't matter. You don't need to theorize your movements. You just right. move. Yes. But, hey, we're academics. So we got to theorize stuff. We got to say why is this thing which nobody questions? Yeah. Question, why are we? Let's problematize it. Let's make it a question. Right. Um, because it says something about who we are. It says something about the universe we live in. Um, it has huge. Uh, you know, I mean, all our relationships are all literally all our relationships are based on the assumptions of mind and connections, interactivity between people. Right. Uh, you eliminate that. You virtually eliminate humanity. Right. So it might be better if we knew what we were doing when we start making um, assumption, because we sort of assume that whenever we do social sciences or humanities, we're assuming what people know. We're right. assuming from our own experience how people act. Yeah. And, you know, most of the time we're actually pretty good at it because we're good at reading other people. Right. 
but I think mm. it's we night it's but it's those border areas that are interesting to me. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love that it's such a simple that's such a simple thing like tug of war can reveal so many complex and possibly profound things about who we are. I think that's really uh, that's a really um, like beautifully elegant simple idea. So like good for you. That's awesome. Well, that's very very I'm very pleased that you say that. Now if my committee says that <laughs> uh, in about 3 years I'll, I'll be very happy I'll to write you a letter. Thank you. <laughs> to that effect. No, but um so I, you know I I know that you are a musician, you play music um and you seem like a very creative person. Um do you do you think about ac research in at your academics as a creative process or Yes, mm -hmm. I think I think it. I think it's always a creative process. I think some people are taught that it's not creative if you write, yeah, or if you produce something in a response. If you're an engineer, you're responding to usually a problem that's right. very clearly defined, usually by somebody else, and you're trying to find an answer to that. That is creative. You're because in, if you're doing art, if you're a painter, because I, I did studio arts earlier on in my career. Mm -hmm. um, you're solving a problem. So how do I portray something? How do I how do I put the paint on the paper? How do I sculpt something? How do I assemble it? How do I create this performance? So it's always a creative um, thing to to any time you're thinking of something new. It's creative. Yeah. It doesn't have to involve paint. It doesn't have to involve theater, um, but it can. Yeah. And I think the important thing is that it, we have we have to be thinking. Oh no, the written part of my work is not creative. No, it's extremely creative. Yes, absolutely. But it's different from the creation of, for instance, writing a song. Right. Or, or uh, making a video game. Sure. Yeah. But I, I, yeah, I wanted to hear you say that because I think sometimes too, for people who are new in academia or young young grad students, or you know, even for myself, you know, you sometimes don't think about your work in terms of it being. Uh, creative process, and I think I, for me it is, and I think it's important to sort of like to open that up and 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 have that be a possibility for people, even in something like writing, right, where it seems like this is an academic pursuit or that there's there's not not a, a sort of uh, maybe obvious creative component at first glance, but that it is there embedded in the work. I Absolutely, love that. Absolutely, because you're the the bottom line is if we're doing research, which yeah. means we are finding something new, right. If that is not creative, I don't know what is. Mm -hmm. And moreover, if you are, if you can say, no, my, my writing is completely uncreative, this was completely mechanical, you're probably not pursuing a question that's terribly interesting. Right. And in fact, most people are, they're told, it's, they're perhaps indicated they're not, but in fact, they are doing something creative, they mm -hmm. are doing something interesting, and that's what they should be looking for, um, because that is why you do it. Yeah. Otherwise, jeez. Invest in the stock market. Sit on the beach. Right. Don't think too hard. You know, that's if you, if you don't want to be creative. But you know, so I think I think whether whether and I'm not and I'm not and again, writing is a creative process as much as anything else, and that includes academic writing, includes scientific writing. Yeah. You are coming up with something new. Right. Um, and it's important to respect that in your own work. I think. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and be and feel good about that. Yes. So, our final segment today is another off-the-record segment, and this time, Adam turned the tables on yours truly and asked me about my own research, and I explained how I'm trying, trying being the operative word, to bridge my work as an artist with my master's research.
Uh, what's your uh, MA on? What's your uh, MA work? My MA? Oh, yeah, I guess I should maybe, like, situate myself yeah. in all of this, hey? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, my MA, um, so I used to be an actor in Toronto for okay. 10 years before going back to school. And so my MA is about masculinity and body image. Um, specifically, I'm looking at guys who would be considered plus size. Okay. And um, who, who work in film and television, how they negotiate sort of their personal and professional identities when the industry that they work in can be really reductive about those yes. identities. And that identity is continuously being imposed from without. So that's what, and so like, what do you do with that? How do you subvert that? What do you, you know, like, how do you live with that? How do you, you know, like, how do you reconcile that with your sort of like personal everyday life? So it's sort of that like blurring the line between personal and professional identities I'm interested in. And yeah, it's, oh. Oh, it's also a video project. So it's like, and I think I would call it ethnography. Like it is kind of an ethnography because, so it's a video project. Um, I'm, it's a very small group, so like four to five guys, and they're keeping video diaries. And so it's kind of, essentially, it's four interviews where they keep a video diary and then send me the footage, and then I'm going to edit it into a short film. So that's sort oh, of the like, fantastic weird project. methodology. But I, I think I would call it, they're kind of like mini ethnographies. Yes. In a way, I guess. What little I know about ethnography. Are you are like you are you are you um in cinema or are you in um or theater or uh, um, I, what, well, I trained in theater, but I did work okay. in film and TV, especially commercials. I did tons of commercials okay. for like cars and beers and sports teams and other things. Probably I can't oh, say. Oh, that was like, you yeah, yeah, spilling yeah. the beer. The okay, lottery. <laughs> Selling okay. people lottery tickets. Yeah, so and, and, like... But, uh, and here you're in the sociology and department? And here I'm in the sociology department, okay. yeah. It's a master's okay. in sociology, okay. yeah. Okay, fantastic. So, yeah, and so the like documentary part is sort of just like a component, like it's just an addition to my uh, my written components, like a com companion piece, I guess. But well, that's fantastic. That's a really, I think it's a really fabulous project, really interesting to yeah. go. And I like the, f the, the, the output of film. I think that's a very good way to deal with it because yeah. it is such a dynamic... Um, the the only thing better would be to do an improv piece, right? Uh, for your defense, with oh my god, that's the, a great idea. Stealing it. Oh, <laughs> hey, thanks, just, Adam. Just say thanks and thanks, to Adam. <laughs> who thought of the idea? Well, that's it, everybody, for another episode of Best Concordia. Thank you so much for tuning in. We love you guys. It's great to have you with us here. Um, big thanks to our guests today, Adam Van Sertema, Claude Leduc, music by Claude's band, Sutra and Cathelist. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, and don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Thanks also to my fabulous producers, and Marie Turcotte and Chris Millen and a special thanks to the Ethnography Lab and the Speculative Life Research Cluster for hosting us. That's it for another episode. We will see you next week. Bye. Probably. We only have like 20 million social medias right now. Snapchat, WhatsApp. They need, they need, they need to be able to contact us. How are they going to be able to find us? It's so hard to reach us. It's all for the fans. It's all for the fans. Do it for the kids. Ooh, it's, yeah, like postcards, written mail, snail mail. Oh, we need a PO box. That's the thing we're missing.